All right, everyone, it's 7.31, actually. We're running terribly late. Outrageous. Good evening to all, to our spring semester of adult faith formation. Tonight's topic is titled, The Resurrection and Confession. Let's ask the Lord to be with us in our prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Thomas the Apostle, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So again, tonight we want to talk about where the sacrament of penance, or confession, or reconciliation. You may know it by one of those three terms. Penance, confession, or reconciliation. There are reasons for all three of those terms. Penance, because the sacraments, like all, are one from the penance the Lord Jesus did for our sins on the cross. Confession, because we vocally confess, state what it is we have done wrong. Or reconciliation, it reconciles us, brings us back into right relationship with God Almighty. Now again, this is not a course on the sacrament as such, though you're free to ask questions about the sacrament as such. A lot more about its appearance in the resurrection account of our Lord. So this is from the catechism. It's called the Roman Catechism, tradition of the catechism after the Council of Trent and the sacramental definition. It says, In the first place, it will be well to explain why it is Christ our Lord was pleased to number penance among the sacraments. One of his reasons certainly was to leave us no room for doubt regarding the remission of sin which was promised by God when he said, If the wicked do penance, they shall be saved. Quoting Ezekiel 17. For each one has good reason to distrust the accuracy of his own judgment on his own actions, and hence we could not but be very much in doubt regarding the truth of our internal penance. Right? This is a sentence that explains, right? Well, why can I go to confession to God directly, right? So I'm going to reread that sentence again. Each one has good reason to distrust their own accuracy of their own judgment on their own actions. Right? Now again, this is, so for example, the test you take in school, do you grade it? No, your teacher grades it. Right? When... Um, Someone is professionally ice skating. Do they just no? Right. Do what? Do we uh, interview ourselves for advancement? Right? No, because we all know right that we ha there is good reason to distrust the accuracy of our own judgments on our own action, and hence we could not 
but be very much in doubt regarding the truth of our internal penance, right? How would I know that I'm forgiven? Because I say so? If I'm going to confession to God, just quote directly, when do I know that it's real and true, and when do I know it's just not in my head? So Jesus Christ does not want to leave us in doubt about the forgiveness of sin. Thus, holy baptism and penance. It was to destroy this, our uneasiness, that our Lord instituted the sacrament of penance, right? I like that. It's to destroy our uneasiness. Because we say, I'm very nervous to go to confession. (laughs) But it's to destroy a psychological uneasiness. But the Lord institutes the sacrament of penance. By means of which we are assured that our sins are pardoned by the absolution of the priest. And also to tranquilize our conscience by means of the trust we rightly repose in the sacraments. To make our consciences calm. We trust in sacraments. Jesus, I trust in you, right? That's what we do. The words of the priest, sacramentally and lawfully absolving us from our sins, are to be accepted in the same sense as the words of Christ our Lord when he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good heart, your sins are forgiven you. So we should put the same trust when the priest says, I absolve you from your sins, that we put in, that the paralytic did when Jesus said, you know, your sins are forgiven you. So that's the first place. Why penance? First place, ease our consciences. Make us assured of the righteousness that is won for us in Christ. Give us confidence in the graces won by Christ. Right? In the second place, no one can obtain salvation unless through Christ and the merits of Christ's passion. Right? Jesus wins salvation on the cross. Hence, it was becoming in itself and highly advantageous to us that a sacrament should be instituted through the force and efficacy of which the blood of Christ flows into our souls, washes away all the sins committed after baptism, and leads us to recognize that it is our Savior alone we owe the blessing of of reconciliation. So it's Christ who reconciles the world to God in himself. And so it's because we have a penance, a sacrament, something we can have absolute confidence in. And this is where I want to move. Yes? I'm reading for what was called the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The Catechism of the Council of Trent. So let's get to the scriptural narrative, right? This is the answer to the question, where's confession in the Bible? The answer is it's an Easter Sunday. Now again, just a little reminder. Early on that first Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other holy women go to the tomb with the spices. It's empty. They say, why do you search for the living one amongst the dead? He is not here. He's been raised. They all run back and tell the rest of the apostles. Peter and John, very likely with Mary Magdalene, or she's coming right after, 
run back out and they see an empty tomb? No, not the empty tomb. Tomb with the burial cloth and the place that colored his linen there. But him they don't see. They leave. Mary Magdalene sees the resurrected Lord. Somewhere on the way back, our Lord appears to Simon Peter. Although, again, that's not accounted directly, but indirectly, they say he appeared to Simon, right? Then the two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, sometime in the afternoon, he appears to the two of them, opens their minds to the scriptures, and is made known to them in the breaking of the bread, the Eucharistic confirmation. He is made known to them in the breaking of the bread. They run back to Jerusalem, to the upper room, and they bust in the door, and everyone says, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And they recount all that had happened, how he was known in the breaking of the bread. And then we come to John 20, verse 19, right? This is Gospel of John, verse, chapter 20, verse 19 through 23. John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, right? What fear? that they would be arrested as followers of this renegade outlaw and crucified. Jesus came and stood among them. This is one of those resurrection appearances. The door is locked. Jesus comes and stands among them. So again, this is part of the icon of the resurrected body. It has physical properties, but also has non-physical properties, right? They break the bread, he vanishes. Mary sees him but doesn't recognize him. Now he stands in their midst. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you, all right? So now we're moving along. People have seen our Lord. The fear is dissipating. They don't wonder who this is. They're not terrified thinking they're seeing a ghost, right? He says, peace be with them. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay. Now remember, I mentioned that when the Lord sees Mary Magdalene, she goes to embrace him and he says, No lo me tendre, don't hold on to me or don't touch me. Not yet a sinner. Now he, now he reminds him of the Eucharistic presence. And then he shows his hands and his side, which are what? The marks of his passion. See what's going on here. The setup is happening. He's been known in the breaking of the bread. He's now showing the marks of the passion, the marks of his penance by which he paid the debt of sin. You know, the marks are sort of the depositor slip on the debt of sin, right? If anyone wonders if I paid for the debt of sin, yes. I did. I've got the zero balance on the promissory. So that's what our Lord is prefacing that. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent sent me, even so I send you. This is now the mission of the apostles. As the Father sent me, even so 
I send you. Okay. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The sins you forgive of any, they are forgiven. The sins you retain, they are retained, right? Thus the power to absolve sins. Really, in truth, the power to judge people's confessions. Forgive and retain. Now, that is, of course, remember when Jesus Christ forgives sins in the Scriptures, they call him a blasphemer, right? Who is this? God, only God alone can forgive sins. So it is any objection that one of the, or is it any surprise, rather, that one of the biggest objections to Catholic theology is sacramental confession. Is there? And the, 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 it's interesting, the critiques are on both sides. It's obtuse and ridiculous and hard. I have to go find some priest to go say my confession to. I should just be able to kneel down and tell Jesus too hard. And the other, and the other critique is, too easy. All you have to do, no matter what horrible thing you do, is say you're sorry and you can be forgiven, right? It's the scandal of Jesus Christ. It's the scandal of Christ. And they say, who, will, who is this one to forgive sins? Who is this one to shame us because of the woman caught in adultery? We caught her in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses said such women are stoned. So that's the same kind of scandal that the penance has has sort of always had. On one side, the group that says it's too hard, or the moments in our life when they say it's too hard. On the other side, it's too easy. But notice that the sacrament itself is right at the very heart of the resurrection account. That Christ is conveying divine power. Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retained, are retained. Thus, as the Lord said before the, the ascension to heaven, He'll say, therefore, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name, beginning in Jerusalem and unto the ends of the earth. So at the very heart of Christian life, at the very heart of Easter mystery, is the Holy Eucharist and the sacrament of penance. Right? The two are in a very real way tied together on Easter Sunday. The glory of sharing in the divine life of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist is bound up in the need to do so with a pure heart and that we don't have to worry about making our pure heart. God does it. I will take from them their stony hearts and give them hearts of flesh. I will do it, says the Lord. And it breaks us out, right? It is the unexpected and the unlooked for. That's the whole point. It's the unexpected and the unlooked for. 
Does the Eucharist have antecedents in the Old Testament and foreshadowings? Yes, bread from heaven, so forth. Right? Does the confessional have antecedents in the Old Testament? Yes, absolutely it does. Right? Prophets receive a moment. Interesting, when you read the prophets, they forgive sins almost never. They might say, go make a sacrifice because you sinned or something that... But they themselves, the only prophets who forgive sins, only do in a moment of unique grace that's given to them. Because who can give forgive sins but God alone? But now Jesus Christ is sending out his apostles in the same way that the Father sent him. And just as he could say, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven you. So they will be able to say. And in that resurrected life, it's intimately tied to the marks of the passion. Now I want to briefly forward to a meditation written by the Apostle St. John. Right? So the Apostle St. John wrote the Gospel that we quoted from. This is the first letter of the Apostle John. Right? So the first letter of John, chapter 5, starting on verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a deadly sin, right? What is not a deadly sin. Now as a sidebar, this is exactly where the church gets its distinctions between mortal sin and venial sin, right? If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a deadly sin. Some of you know the word mortal comes from the Latin word mortis, which means death, all right? So a mortal sin is a deadly, a grave sin that kills the life of grace in the soul. So what does, what's its deadly effect? What does it kill? The life of grace in the soul. That's different what we call venial sin, right? Venial, coming from the Latin venal, meaning small, or really a part of. Right? So sins that kill and sins that don't, right? So if you see anyone committing what is not a deadly sin, he will ask. And God will give him life for whose sin is not deadly. Hmm? This is why at every Mass we go, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The Lord be with you. On a side note, if a bishop says Mass, he goes, in the name of the Father, Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Peace be with you, right? The bishop is a successor to the apostles as such. So here I'm going to take a little derivation point, right? A bishop is a direct successor to one of the twelve apostles as such. Priests are not successors to the twelve apostles as such. They share in the power. Now this is what in Catholic theology is called, all right, faculty. You have grace of state, and you have faculty. Faculty is sort of ability. Put it like this. State, when I'm a priest, I have power to do things from God that no one can take away from me. But they're not just all my own. They are dependent upon my bishop. So my bishop can restrict those or expand them. Such wise that even though God gives me the power, 
If I do something apart from my bishop or restricted by my bishop, I can do it validly, but I sin. Case in point, if a priest falls into mortal sin, can he say mass? Yes. Will he blaspheme when he makes Holy Communion? Yes. So he's got himself a real problem. Because if he falls into mortal sin on a Saturday night and he's going to say the Sunday night, he has himself a problem. Now, this, that's a moral question, but it keys into the hierarchical question. And notice, Jesus Christ washes feet and institutes the Last, last Supper, excuse me, institutes the Holy Eucharist at the Last Supper, right? Before he's sacrificed on the cross. So he makes them bishops before his passion and resurrection. But he doesn't give them the full power until after. That's when he breathes on them and receives the Holy Spirit and then the power to forgive sins is connected, right? You can bring about the divine presence in the world and you can bring the effects of the divine presence. Even as the Father sent me, I send you. You can bring about God in the world, the Holy Mass, and you can bring about the effects of God in the world. But notice again in that little expression, a bishop at Mass says, peace be with you. A priest says, the Lord be with you. Now we have all kinds of fancy formulas which are perfect. Like the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship, communion of the Holy Spirit and all that. I'm not meaning to tease what I'm saying. Now we've got all kinds of florid ones. Forever and ever, priests say, the Lord be with you. Bishops say, peace be with you. Because our Lord created moments of gradation. You become priests and bishops at one point, but you don't get the full unlocking of that until the later point when I breed the Holy Spirit. That's why a bishop gives faculties to his priests. So if the bishop says, Father Eric Sternberg may no longer hear confessions. I have the power to hear your confession. If you were honestly repentant, we'll get to the articles of confession. If you were honestly sorry for the sin you you committed, and you confessed it truly, and I gave you absolution, and you did your penance, you'd be in a state of grace and be good to go. I would be in sin. Because I have, I have disobeyed the restriction put me on by my bishop. Does that make sense? Right? Now again, bishops are not to do this capricious. There's laws that govern this, so bishops can just be like, I don't like the way Father Eric cut his hair, so I'm not going to allow him here. Confessions, right? It cannot be capricious and so on. This is also why forever and ever, not anymore, but forever and ever in the ordination of a priest, right? Priest would come, he's in his alb and his stool going sideways because he's a deacon. They have the readings and the sermon. Then kneels down and makes his promises to do right and good, form his intention, right? It's like marriage, right? Before you get married, you say, Do you want to be married to this person? Yes, I do. Do you want to be married till you die? Yes, I do. Do you want to be open to having babies? Yes, I do. Okay, great. You want to get married. We just make sure, right? Priest, will you pray and celebrate the sacraments and teach the Catholic? Yes. Okay, good. You want to be a priest. 
And then the bishop lays hands on his head, right? Married couples hold hands and say their vows. Bishop, hands go down. Then the priest stands up, and instead of his stole going across, comes down in front, because now he's not a deacon, he's a priest. And they put the garment over the top, the chasuble it's called, but it would be pinned up in the back. So it would fall all the way down on the front, but only halfway down on the back. And then they would say the Mass. And then after the Mass, the bishop, like after the celebration of the Eucharist, before the ceremony is over, the bishop would breathe on them and unpin their chasuble. A sign that they have received the full power, right? When a priest puts on the chasuble, he makes a prayer invoking the divine love, right? Because he says the Mass, why? Out of the divine love for the world. And it was pinned up because the totality of that divine love showed on Easter Sunday was the forgiveness of sins. So God, when that priest was ordained, gave him the full power. Even as the Father sends me, I send you. But then the bishop breathed like Christ breathed and unlocked the fullness of that power. These were all ritual things, and we'll continue here in the letter of St. John. The church has always loved. There is sin that is not deadly. Now, to be clear, venial sin is absolved in many ways that are not confession. Venial sin. As, right, if anyone sees a sin that is not deadly, he will ask and God will give him life for those sins which are not deadly. So, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Dear brothers and sisters, let's call to mind our sins, meaning our not deadly sins. Although, as a sidebar and connotation, you know, it's always good to do because if we have committed mortal sins in the past, we still call to mind God's great love for us and forgiving for us for those sins. So, you know, it's a good thing no matter what. But also, if you have committed venial sins, because in the priest, we all say, I confess to Almighty God and so forth. And the priest says, may Almighty God forgive us our sins and bring us to life everlasting. Amen. That's this year, right? Not a deadly sin. He will ask and God will give life for those whose sin is not deadly. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the next part. This is the second half of verse 16. There is sin which is deadly. I do not say that one is to pray for that. Do not say those prayers for deadly sin. All wrongdoing is sin. Yet there is sin that is not deadly. So, mortal sin, deadly sin, is reserved in the absolute space for the confessional. Now, pray God, especially as we advance on the Christian life, we don't commit mortal sin with any real frequency. That's the idea. You say, well then, Father, why does the priest sit in the confessional all those times if not many of the people are committing mortal sin? Well, number one, in our contemporary age, probably lots of people commit mortal sin, but that's a whole other conversation entirely. We don't need to go down that road. Right? Because also, because the sacrament of penance is an Easter Sunday sacrament, it seemed to have great healing effect. So especially if we commit repetitive venial sins. 
That's a good reason to go to confession even when it's not deadly sin. To go to confession just at a regular basis so that we have the aid of a supernatural grace, an Easter Sunday grace. Because there are two sacraments, two, that are given direct, valid power on Easter Sunday. Two, Holy Eucharist and confession. Baptism is at a different time. Marriage at a different time. Anointing the sick at a different time. Holy Orders is on Holy Thursday. Confirmation, it's late. That's, confirmation is both the baptism of Jesus and Pentecost. But neither one of those are Easter Sunday. Two sacraments, two on Easter Sunday. The Holy Mass and confession. Therefore, just as we can go to Holy Communion frequently for the strengthening of our souls and the raising up of our supernatural life, the protection from evil and the orientation towards glory, so too we can go to confession regularly, even when we do not have deadly sin, for a similar purpose. Resurrection, power, detachment from evil, breaking especially of repetitive vice. Right? Does that make sense? So it's in that heart, in that resurrection heart of Easter Sunday, that the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth. Now I conclude by making a reference to something in the diary of St. Faustina Kowalska. When our Lord Jesus appeared to St. Faustina Kowalska, he said, In this age I will work the greatest miracles I have ever worked, the conversion of hearts. Now why is this important? On Pentecost Sunday, when the Apostle Peter preaches, it says the crowds cried out. It says that the crowds were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Now, when the apostles go out and about, they have to confront unbelievable things. Paganism, Persecution, right? All the apostles are martyred except for one, John the Apostle, and he was just exiled and tortured, right? So all that. Well, their successors go out, right? Saint Denis out in Paris, Saint Boniface out of, and they have to direct, they have to combat direct pagan supernatural powers. And guess what? They do it just like that. I mean, it's amazing because to throw down a demonic power is, relatively speaking, easy. If you are in a state of grace, you can throw down a demonic power fairly easily. If you're in a state of grace and detached from any kind of sin, then you can do it super easy. So St. Boniface can go and bless their forest and cut down their sacred tree. And everyone hears the shrieking sounds. And then it's all gone. And the whole masses of people are converted because they had to overcome their detachment to heathen, pagan, supernatural evil powers, which they could do, frankly, quite easier. You know it was a lot harder? <laughs> Converting their hearts. Because then Ulf and his six wives all of a sudden realize that the demonic power that was in the forest is no longer there, and so they believe in this Christian God. All of a sudden you have to tell Ulf, you don't get to sleep with your six wives anymore, just one, and they have to have those six ladies be down with that. That's harder. That's the conversion 
of heart. You have to tell the king, no, remember how you used to like to go down the river and pillage and st- you can't do that no more. That's right. St. Stanislaus, who's a believing Christian, is martyred by his brother Boleslaus. Why? Boleslaus didn't like it that they couldn't go raiding and pillaging and all this. Perfectly happy to not believe in the pagan gods anymore, but what, you know what? That's all, that's all. So in this age, the greatest miracle is the miracle of the conversion of heart. And that is why the Lord said he'll give so many graces to the confessional. Why? Because he instituted on Easter Sunday that great sacrament so that the most inveterate, wretched, sinful soul can be forgiven just like that in the divine heart. Just like that. And lead a good, moral, upright, godly life. Okay? That's the, Easter, that's the unlooked-for thing. Just like the resurrection that is unlooked for. They don't expect it. They don't recognize him. They see all the horns in him and they can't Believe that he's alive, he is. And that same way, the forgiveness of sins is almost unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. And just like it can be easy to, for them to not believe in the resurrection, it can be easy to not believe in the forgiveness of sins. And yet it's there, and it's true, and it's beautiful. Okay. That's the half-hour mark. Questions from folks. Dave. I, yeah, I kind of could have misheard this, you know me. Holy Thursday, we have the washing of the feet, mm-hmm. the institution of the sacrament of holy orders. Mm-hmm. Bishops, okay. Now, do we have the institution of the Eucharist that night? Yes, we do. And then on Sunday, we have the institution of the Mass. You, said you could say that, yes, absolutely. That That could be said that... The Eucharist as such is given on Holy Thursday and the Mass is given on Easter Sunday. That would be fair to say. Yep. Mm -hmm. He can't have the Eucharist without Him rising. Right. He can have the Eucharist without Him rising, right? He himself can say, This is my body. We can't until He rises from the dead. Can you help us understand what happens with um, unconfessed sins due to an improperly? Okay, so I don't know something is yet. So again, let's all be mindful of something. A sin, the definition of a sin is doing something you know is wrong. Or we might say freely doing something you know is wrong. So the way I know something is wrong is called my conscience. Now, I can have... There's basically three kinds of states of conscience. Right conscience, wrong conscience, or ignorant conscience, right? So I think, Pat, what you're asking is falling more in the ignorant window, yes, right? I am a Catholic, but for whatever reason, uh, the culture that is around me, things that my family say, things that I learn in school... Uh, I don't know that such and such is a moral evil. Abortion, let's say. There's social intellectuals, experiences around me. I I don't 
I either never hear that it's evil or I hear it put lightly, but it doesn't really hit home at all. Is that what you're kind of talking about? And so uh, all my life long, I try to live a good, I'm not sure how this could really be, but let's just say it was, all right? I live a good Catholic life. I facilitated in an abortion because I didn't know it was a moral wrong, and then I die. Right? Now, number one, judgment is God, but we'd say particularly, you can't sin if you don't know something is wrong. So if someone is truly ignorant, they are not, and this is right, they're not immediately culpable for the evil they do. Right? The classic example, uh, the Aztec priest is sacrificing accounts where 20, 30 people a day, which he thinks is all right and good and glorious in the eyes of gods and men. Right? Not only does he think that this is not wrong, he thinks it's awesome. That it's, that it's, not only is it not wrong, that it's the highest good. Right? Is he culpable for those killings, morally? The answer is probably not. Now, the caveat to that is, can someone do direct evil and not know that it's wrong, right? That's the question that's in the human heart. Right, that's the natural law. Say no one ever tells you that stealing is wrong, but you take something that you know is not yours. That's the question of the heart. Can you really... Because you might see that the person you stole from is upset, you might notice that the friends and relatives of the person you killed are, you know. So that's the other really, that's the real, ha- that's the unknowable part of your, qu- the technical book knowledge is, you know, that you can't be comfortable with something you don't know is wrong. The difference is, if you have an ignorant or erroneous conscience, you're duty-bound to do it right, right? All human beings are duty-bound to search for what is true. You might make mistakes, if you're honestly searching what's true, you might make mistakes. But you should not stay in a state of ignorance. You have a question? I have two questions of brief, briefly. When you hear the term impersona Christi, yeah. is that only for bishops or for bishops and priests at a certain point? It's for bishops and priests and on certain moments deacons when they are doing direct sacramental acts. So I am not in persona Christi when I preach the sermon. I am when I say the Eucharistic prayer. That's why I don't say, Jesus said, this is his body. Say, so this is my body. Right. That's why I don't say, God forgives you of your sins in the name of the Father. I say, and I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father. We don't say, God baptize you in the, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son. We don't stand, now there's the second, right, because there's a moment, married couples act in this way. Married couples don't say, uh, Lisa, God wants me to take you as my law. I take you. So those are the moments when they act in the person of Christ. Right? F- famous Augustine's term, when the bishop baptizes, it's Christ who's baptizing, etc. Yeah. Is there a sin for which there is no forgiveness? Ah, the proverbial sin against the Holy Spirit, right? 
Christ Jesus says, all blasphemies and all evils will be forgiven men whatsoever except the sin against the Holy Spirit, for at there is no forgiveness. What is the sin against the Holy Spirit? The sin against the Holy Spirit is the denial of divine power. What we call commonly either presumption or obstinance. Presumption, God will forgive me no matter what. I mean, it's his power. He has so much power, he has no power, right? I can just do whatever when I presume God will act. I don't care about the way God's act. I just presume God will act. Or I say, right, God can never forgive me. Those are the sins against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness. If you truly believe all dogs go to heaven no matter what, you're at least teetering right on the edge of the sin against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness. If you likewise are so crusted over that God could never forgive me no matter, you know, I'm so... This one, I encounter obstinance a lot more than presumption. Right? Most people either... I mean, there's denial. All this is hogwash and whatnot. That's different from atheism and so on and so forth, right? But those, the unforgivable sin is the denial that God has power to act. Does that make sense? Here, Mary. Sorry. Um, so when you go to Mass every Sunday, mm-hmm. assuming you have no mortal sin on your soul, mm-hmm. um, when you walk out of that church after Mass and a two-ton truck hits you, is your soul pure? Being in a state of grace, pure is an interesting word. If you have not committed mortal sin and you get hit by a truck, you are in a state of grace. Are you pure? That would depend on the holiness of your life. Does that make sense? Um, well, I, don't want to get, I don't want to get hung up on the word pure, but I, I think that does matter. Your, your, soul, is pure or, or not your soul might not be pure. You might have an attachment to a venial sin. You, there could be some vice that you're attached to in your life that is not mortal. Okay, and even after being that absolved, when you, when you do that sin. Right, because there's, there's the one thing, so what the one thing that the Eucharist does not do, it doesn't do penance for us. Okay. It lifts us up, it clears our minds, it helps us detach from you, but it doesn't do penance for us. And remember, purgation has to do with both spiritual and temporal effects of sin. So remember, sin, we say, has two effects. Spiritual, your relationship with God. Temporal, your relationship with the world. But, but the venial sins need to be confessed in the confessional, even though they're forgiven. Not necessarily, Not no. Not necessarily, if I let's say I'm a let's say the law because the law of the church is you must go to confession once a year. Right? If you've not committed any mortal sins, you must go to confession once a year. The so-called Easter duty. Right? You are bound to go to confession and receive Holy Communion once a year. Now the notion behind that is a Christian does not regularly fall into mortal sin. We can, we can imagine a nice uh, 
life on the prairie, right? Especially in an agrarian society. Grow up mom and dad and little sisters and you pray together and truck on into Sunday Mass and hear catechism from the priest and for the most part everyone's right and good, all right? You don't hate your little sister. Something happened, you have a moment of passion, stupid, and you push them, right? That's that's probably not a mortal sin. So you you do, right, same thing, husbands and wives, right? Every once in a while, husband rolls his wife, his eyes look because she nags him a little bit, or, you know, she goes to coffee with all of her four friends from the other four farms, and, oh, you know, Billy, you know how he is. But for the most part, they don't commit any mortal sins. They live a generally good life. They come in and go to confession once a year because they just don't commit mortal sins, right? In contemporary life, that's hard to imagine because we don't get into why that is. They don't have the Internet and all this sort of stuff, okay? Well, now, when one of them dies... Will they have to do purgation for the effects of whatever their venial sins were? Yes, they will. Would they have had to do that also for those same venial sins if they had gone to confession? Yes, remember, confession removes the spiritual effect due to sin. Where's the justice in the evil man who lives an evil worldly life and then... uh, gets hit by the bus and is dying in the hospital and having to face death for the first time in his life, repents. And let's even say he, right, because the church said, let's say he really does. He really is sorry for all the evil that he did in his life. And the priest comes and hears his confession and anoints him and he dies. Where's the, well, the justice is in purgation, all right? Because the spiritual effect of all the evil he did is forgiven. And he can see glory. But the temporal effect of all the evil he did is long in the train. And so he's going to have a lot of purgation to do. Yeah, leading others to sin is one of the worst of all the sins. Jesus says better a millstone is thrown around your neck and you're cast into the sea than to cause someone else to sin. So yeah, leading other people into sin is one of the gravest of all evils. Especially if it's mortal sin. So yes, all those in the world who facilitate evil have, that's hard. You have to repent. <coughs> you have to stop doing it. Yes, absolutely. You know, I've been in the, sometimes again, it's, this is where sometimes it's grateful to not be in a powerful position. Because when you're in a powerful position, you realize you have to repent, and I've seen this, you give up a lot. A whole, whole lot. Now, it's hard to pity them because they have a lot, right? But the moral choice becomes difficulty because they realize, for the most part, they themselves, I've seen this, I'm going to say three times in my life. They themselves are living, by what all accounts, would be a pretty upright life. They're married to their wife. They raise their kids. They don't drink that much. They don't sleep around. You know, they're generally upright people. But what they're doing in their prayer life facilitates a whole ocean of evil. And all of a sudden they realize that. 
and they repent of it, and they have to leave it. Leave it. Yeah. Guy comes to me. I am the vice president of such and such at so and so corporation. And I have been told my bosses that we have to liquidate all these people. I know that our factory still turns a profit. I know this is just a pure shareholding move. I know this is just pure out and out greed. Father, what do I do? You have to resign your position. You can't do that. Now, when I asked that guy, that guy, his $180,000 a year paycheck and his pension, that's going to be awesome three years from now, that's gone. So he's got a, and so that moral choice for him is incredibly hard. But that's what you have to do. That's different from, I talk bad about my sister-in-law. Well, stop doing that, right? The idea is the same, it's just the quality of doing it is harder. I have a question that builds on your response to my previous question. So let's just say that your conscience wasn't properly formed in the past, however long ago. Now it is better, more so. You, at the time, didn't confess sins that you now realize are sins. There is such a thing I've heard of as a general confession, which is kind of going back and reaching back. Yeah, general confession of life is one of those things, let's say a person is not raised well in the faith or so on and so forth, and then has an awakening and realize that they did all kinds of things that were evil in their past, they just didn't know it was evil. Do they have to confess those things? Probably not. Should they confess those things? Yeah, absolutely. That way you don't have any attachment to evil that's down the chain. Does that make sense? Right, yeah, so that'd be, that's what's sometimes called a general confession of life. I just clean the whole house. Depends on the nature of your conversion, right? Uh, someone who is baptized. The moment you're baptized, all gone. All gone. So if you were an inveterate heathen until your mid-50s and were baptized, you don't have to confess any of that stuff. You start from zero. As it were. All right. So, yeah. So, what did our Lord mean when he said to St. Teresa of Avila that in my house there are many mansions? Well, he said that in the Gospel of St. John. Also, it's St. Teresa of Avila. Yeah. So, he means not all, you know, not all dogs are created equal. In my house there are many mansions. You have lived your own life. You will have your own place. Does it have to do with degree of purgation or degree of... Degree, it has to do with degree of perfection. It correlates to when the Lord says, the measure with which you measure out will be measured back to you. When the Lord says, some bear fruit 30, 40, 60 fold, or 30, 90, 100 fold, right? So our Lord's saying, look, some people are going to be holier than others. Do it, Right? Some of the apostles are going to be St. John. Some are going to be St. Peter. Right? Denial and run away. Stay loyal and faithful and true. So many mansions are, yeah, your reward will be just. It will be glorious for all. All glory. Right? But it will be just. Because uh, 
the person who lives a saintly, sanctified, penitential life and the inveterate worldly sinner who converts on their deathbed. They will both see glory. The saintly, sanctified, mortified person will have a different mansion than the, but they'll both be in perfect bliss and happiness and glory. Does that make sense? Jack, did you have one? Purgatory, St. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians. Purgatory is like fire. It is a spiritual fire that purifies. That is what purgatory will be like. Infinite analogies are made. Most of them are stealing from Dante's Divine Comedy, if I can be perfectly honest, right? Most of the comparisons here make, okay, Dante wrote about that, and someone learned about it in literature class. But what will, what does the church teach? Church teaches what St. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians. It will be like fire that burns up. St. Saint Peter talks about how everyone builds on a foundation of gold and lays up things after that. At the end, they will be purified. Some may suffer loss if they build with hay or straw. They will be saved, but as through fire. So that's what purgation is, a fire of some sort. So what, like, what does attachment to sin look like? I don't. I think the best description of this is the novel A Picture of Dorian Gray. Does anyone know that novel? Right? In the novel A Picture of Dorian Gray, Dorian, the central character, is this wealthy, handsome, beautiful man. He's like an icon of beauty. And this painter paints an image of him. And he does, in a sense, a deal with the devil. He wishes that he would always be as beautiful as this painting. So no matter what Dorian Gray does, he doesn't suffer any effects for it. And so as it goes on, you really, he gets himself into this utter debauch. It's, it's a novel of the corruption of the human soul. And when he's at absolute low point is when he comes back and you realize the power is when he pulls back the picture, the picture shows on itself everything that his sin looks like on his body. And so horrifies him, he kills himself in the picture. Of, uh, but I mean, Oscar Wilde was... Oscar Wilde's a great example of this. Oscar Wilde was a disgusting, inveterate, awful person who could never quite shake... Like, A Picture of Dorian Gray is a religious... I mean, it is a religious book. He just wrote it when he was an inveterate, drunken, lustful man, and so on. He converted on his deathbed. Oscar Wilde did. He... <laughs> Betting souls would say he's probably in purgatory till the end of all time. Because he lived in openly public. He led tons of people into sin publicly. He wrote about it. He talked about it. He was a vile, disgusting man. But we would have a reason to believe he is in glory because he made a confession before he died. He will very likely be in purgatory. So again, the question is, what does the effect of sin look like? Judge not that ye may not be judged. That's kind of where that 
lot that lies in that realm. All these fancy Hollywood people who look young forever, God knows what they're doing. All right. Maybe it really is just, you know, juice cleanses and smoothies. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. I can't quite tell, but uh, maybe there's another debt to pay in that regard. Building on what uh, already been asked, uh, for example, Jesus said a commandment that you shall love the Lord thy God with all that heart and soul and strength and, mind and, mind and your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Now that is that is a uh, something that all of us probably interpret to different degrees, and what I'm wondering is it would be impossible probably for any of us to love our Lord completely, 100% with all our might. To what degrees are we talking here? If that if that's true, if my assumption is true that you can only do this, do this command to a degree. Well, your assumption is erroneous. It is possible to do it totally. Christ would not command the impossible. So that's why he says, you shall, right? He's using Ten Commandment language. You shall not think about or do, right? He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father. He also says, enter through the narrow gate. So the apostles hear all this and they say, Lord, who can be saved? And what's the reply of Jesus to that question? Lord, who can be saved? His response is, for men it is impossible. All things are possible for God. Right? So in baptized in the state of grace, it is possible to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, and your whole strength. It's hard. It's striving to enter through the narrow gate so that you don't see it all the time. It's not super shocking. That's why there's such a thing as canonized saints. The church decided to have canonized saints because it said, here's people who did it or came close. So let's look at those people. Because we all know we're, we know ourselves. We're, oh, I'm at like 62%, you know, whatever. And then if I can get really discouraged by my neighbor, this schlep over here. And all that's true. But then you have to do things like judge not. You have to forgive your brother not seven times, but 70 times. Seven times. You have to bear wrongs patiently. and all. So look at the saints, because the saints are the people who either did it or came super close. And by the Holy Spirit. Pardon? And by the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm sorry? And by the Holy Spirit. Invite the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yeah, I mean, all this... Pre- Perfection presumes the spiritual life. Perfection presumes I'm not trying to do it on my own. But because I'm baptized, I can do it. Because I call on the grace of God, I can do it. It's not Christ who lives, not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. St. Teresa of Calcutta had a great saying, never say it's 100% God and 0% you. Say it's 100% God and 100% you. That's, yes, like that. But you can do it. It's hard when you have attachments and bad habits, that kind of thing. 
that I was raised in a nominally Christian home and lived a fairly evil life when I was in high school and early college. So when I had a conversion, there's a lot of work. I went to the seminary, and there's all these guys who are just, they're just good men. They're raised nice and were kind and good. I mean, they're not like without sin, but I mean, they're just... Right? Father Enon's like this. If you remember him, Father Enon's just like a nice guy. He's always been kind. He's in a kind family. They homeschool him, so he didn't go through all the crap in public schools. We won't get into that right now either, all right? Just didn't have, and then off to the seminary, and he's just kind of always been good, right? Being friends with Father Bill Van Wagner is probably his greatest challenge in life. <laughs> Father Bill said that one, so that's not me making fun. Father Bill said that, right? So there, there's like, it's like that. Should I sit here and why didn't my parents do better? You know, that'll happen. What are you going to do? Right? Try to fight against whatever holds me back. Love Jesus. Be grateful he did it all. Okay, 832. Why don't we close it up? In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And may the Lord our God bless you and your families and prosper your works. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.